Our reflections this morning will come from a phrase in John 20, verse 21, where Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so send I you. I want to detail how we are sent to fight as Jesus fought, to bleed as Jesus bled, and to pray as Jesus prayed. When I was seven years old, I went to boarding school. It was a great school. I learned a lot. I'd stay there for three months and then come home for one month of vacation. And as great as school was, it wasn't home. And so at the end of that term, I would sit on those stone steps of school with my eyes fixed on the bend of the road around which my father would come because my little heart was longing to go home. We collectively sit on the stone steps of school. This world is not our home. We do not belong here. And all the advances of humanity and technology and education and industry only make us better at greed and hating one another. And there is within the hearts of all the men and women of God throughout the centuries this home cry, this longing to go home. And we groan with all the creation, as it says in Romans, for the redemption of the sons and daughters of men. We long, as it's written in Corinthians, for mortality to be swallowed up by life. We long for the trumpet to sound and the sky to unfold and the Lord to descend. And for that moment when we, in a twinkling of an eye, are changed and will forever be with the Lord. No death, no night, no curse. And we understand what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I don't know which one I'll choose, verse 23, but I know this, to be with Christ is far, far better. We're in school. There's some good things about school. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so we tie take our eyes and we look at the scriptures and we see verses like Matthew 24, verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to every nation, and then the end will come. And the nations of the Bible are not geopolitical, they are ethno-linguistic. 6,500 of them remain today they do not have gospel witness or gospel access. They don't have churches, as you've seen on the video. In 1985, there were 2.5 billion people in the world that were lost. 1.5 billion of those were what we call unreached. In 2021, those numbers are now 6 billion people in the world that don't know Jesus. 3.2 billion without a Christian friend, without access to a Bible without adequate witness for the Lord Jesus, they are unreached. And so we juxtapose those two sets of data, that this is school, that we long to be home in the presence of the Lord. We understand that the path home is through the nations, the unreached people groups of the world, and yet there are 3.2 billion of them that yet remain, and so that path home seems elongated. And what do we do, and where do we go, and we're weak, and we're powerless. So back to the scriptures we turn. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit 
comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we say, okay, that's what it means to be Pentecostal, so desperate for the presence of Jesus that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will fight as he fought, we will bleed as he bled, and we will pray as he prayed. So we can go home. How did Jesus fight? Well, we see in Mark chapter 11, the last week of his life, he's consumed with his passion to die for the nations of the world. And so he goes into the temple, and there he sees that the institution he has created for all men to meet with Jehovah God has been turned into a marketplace. And the great mission's heart of Jesus ruptures, and he quotes Isaiah 56, and he says, Don't let the foreigner say there's no place for me in God's house. Don't let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. For even in my house shall be granted to them a place better than that of sons and daughters. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And little gentle Jesus, I don't know how you picture him, goes wild. And he's knocking over tables and he's casting out people and maybe he's beating animals. I don't know exactly what's going on. But the text says he drove them from the temple. And I live in the Middle East. I know what a Middle East market looks like. It's loud. It's boisterous. And do you think it would work if you went into a crowded marketplace in that type of area where Jesus lived and said, oh, excuse me, sir, please, this is not appropriate. Would you take your wares and exit stage left? you think that would work? No, Jesus gets visceral. Jesus gets violent. It's the angriest we see him in the Gospels. Just a few chapters before, Mark 8, he said, the Son of Man must suffer, must die. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Oh, no, no, no. And Jesus gets so upset that there would be any distraction from his purpose to die for the nations of the world and suffering in so doing, he turns on his own and says, get behind me, Satan. You see, there is this bit of nasty in the heart of Jesus that if anything is in the way of his glory amongst all nations and the redemption of all peoples, he goes after that. And I call that apostolic nasty. And I don't mean disgusting or gross. I'm using slang. To try and encapsulate this concept that we must have a consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. Not a carnal one, not attacking other people, but a consecrated edginess that focuses on the worth of Jesus and his global glory apostolic nasty. You know the names Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or Tom Brady or Muhammad Ali. They were not necessarily better athletes than those they competed with, but they won championships. Why? They had a little bit of nasty in them. They weren't just going to win the finals. They were going to win the practices. They were going to beat you at tiddlywinks. They were going to be first in line to the bus and get the best seat. They had that competitor's edge. Same coaches, same diet, same opportunities, but they had some nasty in them. If we're going to fight like Jesus fought, we're going to have to have a little bit of apostolic nasty, a consecrated edginess that fixates on the glory of Jesus and his worth amongst all peoples, not directing that at anyone else. Jesus went after his own institution. Jesus went after his own disciple. So what's in your temple? What's in your heart? 
What's in your life that retards or mitigates the advance of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations so that we can go home? What selfishness, what indulgence, what is it in your heart that is not aligned with the passion of Jesus, that visceral passion of Jesus that all the nations would have a place in his house? You need to go after that thing, not in a balanced way. Another example of this is the Apostle Paul. We know that before he was saved, he was nasty. He was dragging people out of their homes. He was committing them to death in prison, overseeing the stoning of Stephen. He had that Old Testament zeal. Well studied, you know, Elijah and 400 prophets of Baal or other instances in the Old Testament when, when there was a problem, they went after it viscerally. Well, the difference for Paul was a revelation of Jesus and everything changed for him in the sense that he was no longer excluding, but he was including. He was saying, who can we bring into God's house? Because he wanted to go home and be with Jesus. But my contention is, even though he was refocused, Paul didn't lose his fire. He still had a little bit of consecrated edginess. Why do I say that? Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, that you so soon leave the gospel of grace you might as well go the whole way and emasculate yourself. Don't get mad at me. That's what the Bible says. I rebuke Peter to his face. Leader of the Sanhedrin, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Two brothers causing confusion in the church. Turn them over to Satan for the salvation of their soul. John Mark, you're off the team. I wish I could be accursed if that would mean the salvation of my brethren, the Israelites. This is not a balanced guy. This is a guy with fire in his belly. And what was that fire? I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he has not been known. I'm pressing on, he said to the Corinthians, to the regions beyond. I want to move and act and live in such a way that I have a single eye, a consecrated edginess on the glory of Jesus amongst all peoples. And I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. Apostolic nasty. Now you might think that's well and good for Jesus, God on the earth, and the most magnificent missionary of the times, Paul, but that doesn't necessarily apply to me. We were in Muscat, Oman a few years ago and got up early one morning in a missionary home. I walked into the kitchen, and it was a little good housekeeping scene, sunbeam coming through the window, a young mother sitting at the table feeding her toddler who is sitting in a high chair some Cheerios and worship music is playing. A cute little Cheerio stuck on this little toddler's head. And it just was so sweet and domestic. And I looked over at the ceramic tile above the kitchen sink and there in her elegant cursive this young mother had written, It's wartime. You want to go home? Do you want to be in the presence of Jesus, free from the brokenness without and the sin within, forever to be with the Lord? That path goes through the nations, and there are 6,000-plus unreached people groups left, 3.2 billion, billion people in the hardest, most difficult places of earth. Our way home goes through the nations. We're going to have to fight for that as Jesus fought. So what in your temple has cluttered out that consecrated focus on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. Not only must we fight as Jesus fought, we must bleed as Jesus bled. 
1960, two medical doctors who were married to one another went to the country that is now called the United Arab Emirates. It used to be called the Trucial States because they made these truces with England. They got in a beat-up old Land Rover and they drove to the interior to an oasis town called Al Ain. Had a catchment area of about 1,500 people. They found there a woman who had been in labor for three days. And they had diagnosed that she wasn't able to give birth because her bladder was so distended with urine that there was difficulty in the birth canal. And so they didn't have their medical instruments with them. So Dr. Kennedy, the man, popped open the hood of that old Land Rover and found the smallest diameter hose that he could, cut it out of the engine, made a catheter, inserted it into the woman, drained her bladder, and then his wife safely delivered a baby. The leader of that tribe, his name was Sheikh or elder, Sheikh Zaid. He was so impressed, he said, I want you to open a clinic here and deliver our babies and take care of our women. So they did. And you might know that in Muslim tradition, whenever a baby is born, it is lifted up and whispered into its ear is the Islamic confession of faith. I confess there's no God but God and Muhammad's the prophet of God. Well, Dr. Kennedy, the woman, with every baby that was born into her hands, she lifted them up and whispered in their ear the name of Jesus and prayed over them. And then in the system of that clinic, they would visit those homes at week one and after a couple months and six months and a year and share Bible stories. And so that child and the mother would all hear about the Lord Jesus. One of the very first babies to be born into Dr. Kennedy's arms was named Muhammad. He was the son of Sheikh Saeed. Sheikh Saeed went on to found the United Arab Emirates. And that little baby Muhammad is now the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. He is the one who has made the Emirates tolerant. He is behind the Ibrahimic Accords that are being signed with Israel. He has mentored the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And that little baby boy was born into the arms of Dr. Kennedy who whispered the name of Jesus into him. And now he's changing the world. Last year voted the most powerful Arab in all of the globe. Point of the story is this. At the beginning of that clinic, they didn't have refrigeration or generators, and so when they needed blood, the staff had made a list of their blood types and posted it on the wall. They would donate the blood needed for those moms. And Dr. Kennedy, the woman, was O negative, the universal blood type. So she was donating her blood all the time. One time she was operating on a lady. She began to hemorrhage. So Dr. Kennedy scrubbed out, donated blood, scrubbed back in, saved the life and the life of the child. And the testimony of Dr. Kennedy was this, that she gave blood so often and so willingly and so gladly that she lived anemic. She lived weak and tired because she gave her blood that Muslim women would be saved that Muslim children would be born, prayed over in the name of Jesus, and grow up to change the world. Philippians 3.10, I think, gives us the theological underpinning for that act of service over the decades, where Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. What's the context for the sufferings of Jesus? Dying for the sins of the world. 
And Paul is saying something very important here in that third clause of the verse. He is saying simply this, that there is a sweetness, there is a fellowship with Jesus that is only experienced when we suffer with him for the redemption of the nations. There is a knowledge of God that cannot be attained in an air-conditioned building amongst a group of Christians. There is an experience with Jesus that when we bleed with him and suffer with him for his purpose, that all men, women, tribes, languages will be gathered around the throne. There's a knowledge of God there that cannot be found anywhere else. And we should not, we must not feel sorry for missionaries or for martyrs or for those in prison or those who suffer for Jesus, they're experiencing Jesus and having a knowledge of God that cannot be found anywhere else. And I want to know Christ in that way, Paul said. We should have a holy jealousy rising up within us and say, I want to know Jesus in every way possible. And there's a fellowship of his sufferings that is not connected to me being Republican or homeschooling or any other small thing we encounter in this nation, but going to the uttermost parts of the earth and giving our blood day after day in that act, we will know Jesus. If we're willing to bleed, is he bled? Paul illustrates this for us. Acts 16, he goes to Philippi. Lydia gets saved. The demons cast out of a servant girl. That prophecy she was giving was giving profit. And so when that prophet is lost, the merchants complain to the magistrates. They beat Paul. They put him in prison. They chain him up with Silas. He sings. The earthquake. Philippian jailer is saved. And at the end of all of that, the magistrates realize they have a problem, so they beg Paul to leave. He says, oh, no, you come get me out yourself. I'm a Roman, and you beat me without trial. You broke Roman law. The question for us is simply this. Why did Paul wait till after he was beaten and in prison to play the Roman card. Why did he go through that unnecessarily? Well, in the, the culture of the day, you probably remember that there's this patron-client understanding. Those who had the power, the patrons, would give benefits or services, and then the clients who received those favors would owe them obedience and service. At the beginning of the story, the patrons are the magistrates. They have the power. But at the end of it, when Paul plays the Roman card and says, you have made a critical mistake. I had the right to fair trial, and you beat me and imprisoned me without due process. All I have to do is go to the governor and report on you. You lose your status, your income, and your honor. Now Paul has the power. He has the patron. And those magistrates have to come cap in hand and nicely asked Paul to leave the city. But before he does, the last verse of Acts 16 is very indicative because he goes to Lydia's house. And by that act, this is what he's saying to the magistrates, the merchants, and the city. See this woman and this little house? She's with me. I'm leaving town. But if you lift one finger to touch her, I'm coming back to town. I'm reporting you to the governor, and your life as you know it is over. So leave my woman and my church alone. And he conveyed his status on her. Now, whether he thought all that through beforehand, we don't know. But what we do know is this. If he would have played the Roman card before, that wouldn't have happened, and the Philippian jailer wouldn't have been saved. Paul gave up his right and privilege and chose to bleed as Jesus bled. 
And the result was a protected church and a saved household. So what rights and privileges will you lay down? And how will you bleed for the sake of the gospel? Do you have the right to live in America for the rest of your life near grandchildren or grandparents with free babysitting? Do you have the right to have a second car and a cabin on the woods and a nice little place in the mountains and take vacations wherever you are and to give out of your excess and to give out of the the abundance you have? Yeah, yeah, sure. You have all those rights. But will you lay them down for the good of the gospel? Will you bleed as Jesus bled? For the sake of the Lydia's, that they would be protected. And the jailers, that they and their households would go free. All because we want to go home. All because we want to be with Jesus. All because we realize that the path home is through the nations. And if we're going to walk that path, we're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. And we are going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. We're also going to have to pray as Jesus prayed. We know from the Gospels that Jesus prayed early. He prayed often. He prayed about critical decisions. And I think sometimes lost in those prayers, including Matthew 26, 39, Not my will but thine, glorify thy name, is the wonder that Jesus was God on the earth and that God prays. Even more staggering to me is Hebrews 7.25, which tells us what Jesus is doing right now. The ascendant Lord, crucified, resurrected, exalted, at the right hand of the Father, with all authority and dominion, ever lives to make intercession for us. The God of all eternity is spending that eternal time praying for you and for me. Is that not mind-blowing? God on the earth prayed. God on the throne is forever praying. If that's true of him, what should be true of us? And yet we don't always have zeal for prayer. We don't always have zeal for the things of God and the lost around the world, and those 3.2 billion and 6,000 plus unreached people groups, including myself. A few weeks ago, I was on a prayer walk in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where we live, and I just wasn't feeling it. I didn't have the passion for prayer. I didn't have the passion for lost souls. And I said to Jesus somewhat conversationally, we have a problem I write books and preach sermons about abiding in Jesus and having passion for lost people. I don't have it right now. I'm in a spell here where I just don't feel like praying. I don't have urgency for the lost. And the Lord brought my wife to mind. And Jennifer, she loves tiny houses. And sometimes she'll show me an Instagram picture or a website of a redesigned little sea container, a small space that has been wonderfully arranged and I have no interest in tiny houses, none at all. But I have a lot of interest in my wife. And I really love Jennifer. So when she shows me something she's interested in, I kind of try and wrestle my heart and, oh, that's great, honey. Yeah, nice, great, love it. And so I was in this, you know, conversation with Jesus. And thinking of that, I said to him, Jesus, I don't have any interest in prayer right now. I'm struggling. I don't really want to even be in the Arab world right now. I'm just tired. I want to run away, escape somewhere, go hide. 
just not interested. I'm not feeling it. But I love you. And I know you're interested in these things. So I'm going to wrestle my heart to be interested in the things that you are interested in because I love you. It doesn't really matter, honestly, how interested you are in giving to missions or praying for missionaries or going yourself. What really matters is if you love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you will wrestle your heart and your wallets and your actions and your prayers and your moments and your days to the things that interest him. Because you love him. 1942, Winston Churchill in the Second World War had a problem. The coal miners went on strike. They weren't being paid enough in their estimation. They weren't on the front lines. And yet their work was so valuable because that coal fueled the war effort. So Churchill went to speak with them and gave a famous speech. And if I could paraphrase it, he essentially said this. We're going to win the war. And when we do, we're going to have a big old parade. And in that parade will come the Air Force who fought off the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain and bombed Germany, and we're going to celebrate them. And then will come the Navy who delivered supplies to the empire around the world for the effort, and we will cheer them. And then will come the Army, and they took the ground and spilt their blood, and they will have applause. But at the end of that parade will march a band of dirty men with wrinkled faces, disheveled clothes, and suits all over their bodies, the coal miners. And they will be asked, where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We cut the coal that won the war. We're going to win this war. 3.2 billion people that haven't heard about Jesus, 6,000 plus unreached people groups. We're going to win the war. The trumpet is going to sound. The Lord is going to descend. We are going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And we are going to gather around that throne as described in Revelation 7-9 with every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people. And we're going to have a big old parade. And at the beginning of that parade will come the apostolic fathers and then will come the reformers and then will come the Hudson Taylors and the William Careys of the world and they will receive their acclaim. And at the end of that parade will come a little grandmother that's seated with us today, who lives off Social Security, and nobody knows that every morning at 6, she rises and gets on her worn-out knees and thumbs through old missionary prayer cards because she's deep in the earth, cutting the coal. We sit on the stone steps of earth, and it is not our home. And men and women of God long to be with Jesus, which is gain, which is far, far better. And all of us at that parade 
will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And we shall reply, we were deep on our knees with our faces to the Lord. If we want to go home, and we do, we're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. And how did Jesus fight? Aren't you glad that the Heavenly Father didn't say to the Divine Son, it's a little rough right now down there in Palestine. Romans are a little woolly. Why don't you hang out here for a couple more years, work the family business, hang out in the family church, and when things calm down in Somalia, North Korea, Afghanistan, then we'll let you deploy. See, Jesus left home. And if we are going to fight as Jesus fought, some of you are going to have to leave home and hearth and go to the difficult places and peoples of the world. Some of you are going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. We are so grateful. If I can represent the missionary family for your generosity, you're an amazing church. You have given generously. Thank you. But have you bled as Jesus bled? Do you live anemic like Dr. Kennedy? And I wonder if there are not men and women here whose gift is to create wealth and God has blessed the work of your hands and your hard labor. But it's not just for you or your generation of ancestors or descendants. It's for the descendants that God wants to give you from the nations. And maybe it's time that you bleed a little bit. And whether you are rich or poor, educated or not, known or unknown, all of us can pray. So may it be said of us, when we are around the throne and all are worshiping Jesus, that we were down in the depths of the earth with our faces to the cold. Would you close your eyes? I'm going to ask you to stand. Would you stand with head bowed and eyes closed? And I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we are your children. And we love you. And so on this missions weekend, we want to wrestle our hearts towards the things that you love. Every one of us has a gift, a talent, that can be applied to your glory being declared amongst the nations that we might all go home. And whatever is the gift represented, the talent, the experience, Lord Jesus, it is our prayer that it would be leveraged for the beauty of Jesus amongst all peoples that we would fight as you fought that we would bleed as you bled that we would pray as you prayed and so that together every gift applied the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to every people group and then the king will come and we will all go home. 
I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.